This morning we want to talk a little bit about wisdom. And wisdom in the cross, and that the cross sometimes isn't viewed as wisdom, it's viewed as foolishness. At other times it's viewed as powerful and wise. But I thought we'd start by talking about wisdom from a dog. Just to sort of, you know, get our, get our ideas going about wisdom and what do we consider wise? And you can learn a lot from a dog, right? Some wisdom from a dog. Never pass up an opportunity to go for a joyride. Allow the experience of fresh air and the wind in your face to be pure ecstasy. I like this one. When loved ones come home, always run to greet them. Now just so you know, this doesn't mean we're getting a dog. For those of you that know my situation, we are not getting a dog. But there's things we can learn from a dog. (laughs) Take naps and stretch before rising. Amen. Yeah. Run, romp, and play daily. Be loyal. Never pretend to be something you're not. Appreciate that about dogs. When someone is having a bad day, be silent, sit close, and nuzzle them gently. Isn't that a great thing about pets and dogs? Finally, avoid biting when a simple growl will do. <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom in that too. But just funny sayings that we consider wise. If you think about different wives' tales and, and different sayings we have, we have a whole group of sayings that we would consider wisdom. And what we would call, this is how you can live a better life, or things that would help us live a better life. And Paul here begins, as, as, as we continue for, through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he begins to talk about wisdom. Because as you know, last week we had situations where people were dividing and, and following. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Cephas. And at the core of those, those um, factions and divisions that were happening was this idea of what is wisdom and where do you find wisdom? Is it in this man? Is it in this man? Is it in this man? And we know that the culture of the time and our, our whole topic of 1 Corinthians is godly living in an ungodly world. We know that Corinth was seeping into the church. And Corinth was all about who's the wisest. That's who you follow. You had itinerant preachers that would come by and they would come into town and make flowery speeches and and show their credentials and flatter people and they would amass a following. They would get a lot of money and then when the money ran out, they'd move on to the next city. And there was concern in Corinth that maybe Paul was just another one of those guys. He left us. Is he coming back? Is he just this itinerant preacher? And so some followed him. Some didn't follow him. As we talked about last week, it wasn't about following any of these men. It was following one voice. And we did our little exercise to show that one voice is what God is desiring. Unity. And we have one focus. And at the end of last week we read, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And that was a lead-in into today's passage Because Paul is saying the one voice, the one thing you should be about is the Gospel. It's the cross. And so he can't help himself. He wants to make sure we we know exactly what he's saying for this next, the rest of this chapter and part of next chapter. He says, okay, let me spell it out clearly so you don't miss it. This is what your one voice should be. This is what it's about. And he talks about the cross and the wisdom of the cross that we know and the foolishness of the cross and how the world views it. 
So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And as we read through this passage this morning, I, I pray that two things happen. One, I pray that we are renewed with a, a sense of awe at the cross. That we come back to the cross and see how majestic it is and wonderful it is. How costly it was. But how powerful it is. And the other thing that I hope we come out of today is really seeing that God's wisdom is very different from the secular worldview that is trying to creep into every one of our lives and trying to creep into every church. And we must be on guard against it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, we begin with, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And right from the start here, Paul sets up a contrast. He tells us, that's the summary verse for the rest of the chapter. He says, this is what I'm going to talk about. We're going to talk about those that believe the cross, those that don't believe the cross, and what it means. So the first point in your notes is the cross divides the world into two groups. The cross divides the world into two groups. And ask the question, how will you think and live? See, Paul just got done talking about divisions and the church dividing over who they wanted to follow. And he comes in verse 18 and says, no, really, there's only one proper division. There's only one thing that divides the world into two groups, and that's the cross. And those that believe and those that don't. We'll talk about each of them them briefly because Paul wants us to understand the difference between the two and the comparison between the two. The first is that the cross is foolishness to the lost. The cross is foolishness to the lost, to the lost. You see in verse 18, it starts, for the word of the cross, and he's referring to the message of the cross, the gospel story. It is folly to those who are perishing. And we know right from the start that folly there has this idea of completely unable to comprehend. I can't even fathom it. The, the Greek word that it comes from is moria, and it happens to where, be the word where we get the word moron. And so to, to the unsaved, the cross, the story of the gospel is moronish. It's, it's so silly and stupid that they can't understand. And so we know that a secular worldview cannot comprehend the cross. It's why we are at odds with a secular worldview, even in this country as we see a worldview becoming more and more secular, they can't understand where we're coming from. Have you ever tried to explain what you believe to somebody and even what you believe about any issue in this world and come from a Christian perspective? And what happens with their eyes? Just sort of gloss over, right? And, and, and they just can't understand. I've had some of those conversations and it feels like I'm just hitting my head against a wall. It's because foundationally they can't comprehend where I'm coming from. And specifically, the message of the cross. And this was true in Corinth. It's true today. They don't understand how someone dying who was actually executed can actually bring life. Makes no sense. And if we try to think of it from a world's perspective, if you take away all of what you know about the Gospel, it does sound a little crazy, doesn't it? So by someone dying, I can live. Gotcha. They don't understand, and especially at Corinth, how can you get this for free? There's nothing for free in this world. And so in a, in a society where it was all about up and coming and who you knew and stepping on people to get ahead, 
How could you actually be offered something like salvation for free? That's crazy talk. And they didn't understand it. How can you not have to earn it? When thinking of God's grace, how could God actually extend grace? That's not what any of the other gods do. The other gods are waiting to punish. They are waiting to, if you do one thing out of line, that they are there to whack you for it. And you're telling me God has grace? And then you say He loves me? Even though I haven't loved Him and I don't offer Him anything? See, in Corinth, the relationships you have are all about what you can get. And so you cared about people that could offer you something. So how would a God care for me when I offer Him nothing? So if I was someone at Corinth that had never heard the Gospel before, maybe I'd say something like this. So you're saying that the way to salvation is to trust a man that's executed as a criminal, in fact, as the worst criminal possible, but he was actually innocent, voluntarily going through this, because he chose to take my punishment. Oh yeah, and he's God. And I'd probably look at you with that same glazed look in the eye and say, nice, okay. Let's go get you a little padded cell. Because that's foolish. It's like making the hero of your faith the last person that was executed in the electric chair. It makes no sense. Because we have to remember what the cross stood for. To us, the cross stands for Christianity. And and it's all nice. And we can wear cross jewelry or earrings or whatever because it reminds us of the Savior. To them, the cross was the Roman instrument of execution. The most horrendous and hideous execution you could possibly have. Reserved for the worst of criminals. It would be like if you came to church next week and we had a beautiful little plaque of an electric chair. Wouldn't that just make you want to worship? That's what the cross represented to them. So are we starting to understand the world mindset that that Paul was preaching to? One author wrote, imagine if you came and you saw all the ladies wearing little electric chair earrings. Yeah, I'd wonder about some of you. The cross is foolishness to the lost. The world can't get it, and we are at odds with the worldview. I want to show a, a, a carving that was found about AD 225 on a hill in Rome. And... Um, the left is the actual picture of the carving. The right, it's been cleaned up so you can see the carving. And so it's the same thing. And what you see there is a, a person hanging on a cross. And what's his head? A horse or a donkey. It, it, was, it was probably more of a donkey. To the left is someone with their hands up worshiping this guy on the cross with the donkey head. There's an etching there that you can all read, right? Well, perhaps it's in Greek. But it reads, Alexamenos worships his God. That's all it says. And it was a caricature of the Christians of the time. This is what the world thought of the Christians. You are worshiping a foolish man who died on the cross. And thus the donkey head. That's the culture that they worshiped in. I would argue it's not that much different today. As I've tried to share the Gospel with people, they look at me like, what are you talking about? Because the, the, 
the world and following the world's mindset, the world's worldview, seeking the world for wisdom, always results in a blindness to the gospel. Paul in Romans says no one seeks God. Not one. We are blind in our natural state to the gospel. It is only by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, revealing truth that we can ever see that he was more than a donkey on a cross. That's what God has done for us. Moving ahead, just another example that I thought was was interesting. One of the American revolutionaries, Thomas Paine, in his book Age of Reason, writes this, Who can doubt the bountifulness of the Christian mythology? Having thus made an insurrection and a battle in heaven, in which none of the combatants could either be killed or wounded, put Satan into a pit, let him out again, gave him a triumph over the whole creation, damned all mankind by the eating of an apple, these Christian mythologists bring the two ends of their fable together. They represent this virtuous and amiable man, Jesus Christ, to be at once both God and man, and also the Son of God, celestially begotten, on purpose to be sacrificed, because they say that Eve in her longing had eaten an apple. Putting aside everything that might excite laughter by its absurdity, or detestation by its profaneness, and confining ourselves merely to an examination of the parts, it is impossible to conceive a story more derogatory to the Almighty, more inconsistent with His wisdom, more contradictory to His power than this story is. It's from one of our American founders. And it goes on and on. There's hundreds of examples. But he very eloquently argues that this is a myth, it's a fable, it's absurd. Well, welcome to the absurd. The cross divides. It unites believers, but it divides unbelievers from believers because the message is either absurd or it's powerful. The two cannot go together. So we see right from the start, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's interesting, the word for perishing there has this idea of they're doing it to themselves. The ones who are destroying themselves. And that's what a secular worldview does. We think we're wise, the world thinks it's wise, but in reality, it's killing itself. So the cross is foolishness to the lost. A secular worldview can't understand the cross. Reading on to verse 19, a secular worldview will be exposed as worthless and destroyed. It's God's promise. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. We've heard that before, but God is saying, yeah, you think you're wise. And He's talking about the, the wisdom of the world. I'll destroy it. The discernment of the discerning, those that think they know what you should do in this world, I'm going to step in the way and thwart their plans. You can write your plans all you want. I'm God. God wins. Amen for that, by the way. I praise God for that. But to a world making godless plans, that is probably one of the scariest things you could read. It's interesting. Paul here is quoting from Isaiah. 
from Isaiah 29, verse 14. And in that section in Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah is dealing with the nation of Judah as they are, are facing the Assyrian threat. And the Assyrians are about to come and surround Jerusalem. And they have this plan. The leadership has this plan. You know what? Egypt's on the other side. Let's give them a couple fronts. And this makes sense from a world perspective. Let's them give them a couple enemies to fight. And so we'll go down and make an alliance with Egypt. And God, through His prophet, says, No, no, you don't need to do that. I'm still God. I'm still here. Even though you look like it looks to you like the plans are gone, it looks to you like this world is falling apart, I still have a plan. I will still save you. And the story goes on that eventually they listened and, and God saved them and killed thousands, tens of thousands of the Assyrians as they surrounded Jerusalem. And the battle was won simply by the power of God to His glory. That's the story Paul quotes. And so he's talking about plans and wisdom. And he's saying, no, no, and, and those that were familiar with the Old Testament would have known exactly where this is coming from. Because the Isaiah passage says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning, discerning men will be hidden. And we want the wonderful things. We want the wonder upon wonder. We just don't want our plans to be changed. But God is saying, you want my wonders? Let me write the plans. And so we come to life writing our plans in pencil and allowing God to write them in pen and erase whatever He wants and change whatever He wants. Whether it be our plans for a family, whether it be our plans to, to, um, for jobs, whether it be our plans for the mission field, God knows. Let Him write the plans. The problem is, and when we think of this verse and the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world says, I'm right. And we like to think we're right, don't we? Anyone else in here thinks you're right when you've... Yeah. And it's okay, because we are. Well, we think we are. Proverbs 14.12, and actually a couple Proverbs are word for word the same thing. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I have laid up in my son's bunk bed sharing that verse with him, talking about what it means, but realizing it applies to me too, not just him. There's a way that seems right to man. Our ways always seem right to us. Of course that's what we should do. But the end is the way of death. And we get so opinionated. And being opinionated is the manner in which we hold an opinion and and the tenacity in which we hold it. And we are so sure that we are right. And we are going to tell everyone and we are going to make sure that we cling to that. And we need to remember there's a way that seems right to man. But in the end, that way is death. Psalm 33, 10-11 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Whereas Paul is talking about God's wisdom, that it confronts the the secular wisdom that is trying to infiltrate the church at Corinth, we have to be just as uh, on guard that we don't fall into a secular worldview. It's what the world views as normal. And so it's so easy for us to fall into that and not even know. 
couple of things to be careful of. We need to be careful not to look to ourselves for guidance rather than God. See, when we forget to seek God with our plans, when we forget to say, Lord God, this is, this is my hopes, but I want what You want, and show me your, your plan, show me Your path. When we forget to do that, we are elevating self above God. We are saying, my plans are greater than His plans. <laughs> and He laughs. We need to view things in light of the cross. That it's all for His glory. That we are bought with the price. My plans really don't, don't matter anymore because His plans are so much better. We need to be looking for Christ for solutions rather than all kinds of worldly wisdom. Another thing to be careful of when we think of our wisdom that it can just be destroyed, that it's, um, it can be thwarted by God is we need to be careful not to view our wisdom as superior to others. We need to be careful not to view our wisdom as superior to others. You know, as I've worked in ministry for many years now, it seems like there's this trajectory where more and more we just don't even know how to disagree. We don't want to disagree. We are so sure that we are right that any conversation where someone disagrees becomes a call to arms and a call to war. We're shocked when someone has a different opinion than we are because, of course, I'm right. And once we get to that point, we stop listening to the other person, which eliminates any chance of a conversation and causes division. And this is why Paul is coming back to God's wisdom instead of our own and, and realizing, I don't have wisdom. And compared to God, I'm a fool. When we come to that point, most divisions in the church would go away. when we don't listen to each other, when we fight over our opinions, we argue over those, what we're really saying is, I don't care about you. My views are more important than you are as a person. Now, I'm not saying there aren't things we stand up for. Paul is saying the cross divides. But it's because it's the theology of the cross. Who God is. Who, who Christ is. How we are saved. That's worth dividing over. Paint color, not so much. So we need to be on guard. Like I said last week, this is just a continuation of Paul's section on division all the way through chapter 3. And so he reminds us that a secular worldview will be exposed and destroyed. Third thing there, the little bullet point, a secular worldview will not last. And Paul, I think he gets a little sarcastic here, which I really appreciate in verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And the of this, of this age is very pointed to say it's just temporary. Where are these people? And he's probably referring to some of the people that the city felt were wise or the church might have felt were wise. The word for wise there, sophos, had to do with the Greek philosophy and the Greek philosophers. The next one, the, the scribe probably um, referred to Jewish scholars who were versed in the law the debater of this age, the, the eloquent orators that would come through town. Where are they, Paul says? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So secular view will not last. These people are all gone. And think about it. Where will your wisdom, where will my wisdom be in a hundred years? 
probably disproven, probably laughable, but most likely not even remembered. You know, we, we've heard of some of the wisdom of the age that time has proven to be false. President of, of DAC Digital Equipment said in, in 77, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. How many of you have computers in your home? Or phones? Or iPads? Those are all computers? Absolutely. Time has proven him foolish in that statement. Western Union in an internal memo said, this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. Bill Gates, and he possibly said this, there's all kinds of debate of whether he actually said this, but it looks like he did say something like this in 1981. This is for my computer friends. 640K ought to be enough for anybody. (laughs) Your phone has several hundred times that, and it's too small. All of those statements were made at points in time, and then time proved them to be foolish. That's the world's wisdom, because the world doesn't last. And Paul here is saying, what are you chasing after? What is important to you? Are you pursuing God's wisdom? Are you pursuing His Word? The cross is foolishness to the perishing. It changes everything, though. Because it's about a change of mindset, a change of worldview, that we're now to view everything in light of the cross and God's work on the cross and His saving work in our lives. But to the world, it's foolish because it's a constant reminder that we cannot pay our debt on our own. Thus the need for the cross. It's a constant reminder that sin is devastating and requires a life to pay for it. And that's uncomfortable. We'd rather sin be fine. The cross is a constant reminder that the old man is dead if we're believers and I'm to be different. Which is challenging. And so we'd rather avoid the cross many times because it confronts self-centeredness. Even for us as believers, it confronts the self-centeredness that's still in our life. Because we're still confronted that Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for me and for my sins. And I keep sinning. In Pilgrim's Progress, I hear we have a class on that. Evangelist is talking to Pilgrim after an encounter with worldly wise men. I don't know if you're past that point yet or not. Um, And and they had just talked with worldly wise men and Pilgrim's sort of figuring that out and Evangelist is is debriefing him on it because worldly wise men would follow the world's way of doing things. And the last thing that Evangelist said as he talks about worldly wise men and seeking the world's wisdom is that it saveth him from the cross. It saveth him from the cross, his worldly wisdom. Because we don't want to be confronted with the cross. The cross doesn't make sense. So that's the first side. I know we're spending a lot of time on point one, those that are time-sensitive. If you notice, there's not a lot for the other points. This is the, the whole theme of the passage. The second half, B, the cross is the power of God to the believer. The cross is the power of God to the believer. Amen? In verse 18 and then 21, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
but to us who are being saved. And again, this is an ongoing term. Salvation it happened in the past, but we are still being saved or, or becoming Christ-like. The cross is still at work in our lives. It is the power of God. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And Paul here again is continuing the same theme that there's two camps. It's a division. It's a choice. There is no in-between with the cross. It's folly or it's power. And in verse 21, he expands on that, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And what he's saying there is that God intentionally chose to to make the system, and He's the Creator, He gets to do that, to where human reason and human effort can't save you. That will never get us to God. And he's going to talk about why a little bit later in the section. But it's not up to you, it's not up to me. Nothing we can do can save ourselves. No amount of sitting and reasoning and, and, and just saturating ourselves with philosophy, none of that gets us to Christ, to salvation. It is only the cross. So in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, true wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, God's way, His plan, is that the cross leads to salvation. That God Almighty in human form, living a perfect life, would voluntarily go to the cross and say, I'm going to take the punishment that Ron deserved. I'm going to take the punishment that Jacob deserved, that Myron deserved, that Don deserved. It makes no sense, but man is that powerful. Because I can't pay for it myself. I'm weak. But God in His strength says, I'll take care of it. And that should blow us away. In His sovereignty, He chooses us and saves us and dies for us. Paul, writing from Corinth, incidentally, to Romans in Romans 1.16, said, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Think about this. That, that cross that is folly to the world is power and life for us. Why? What is the power? It shows that, there is, that God has power over sin because it pays the price for sin. It shows that God has power over death. He defeated death on that cross and in His resurrection three days later, He didn't stay dead. Power over sin, power over death. It showed that God had power over Satan and could thwart His plans. It shows that God and God alone has power to give salvation and eternal life. That God has power to give righteousness because on that cross, Jesus took our sin, but then imparted to us His righteousness. 
And when God looks at us, if we believe and if we've repented and if we follow Christ, He sees Jesus' righteousness because on that cross, a transfer happened. That's power. I can't declare any of you righteous. I can't give you my righteousness because you'd be just as dirty. This is amazing. And village, believers, that power is still at work in you. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, as Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's saying the immeasurable greatness of His power is still working toward you and in you. This is a new way of thinking. The world says, live life and get all you can. God says, I've made a new life for you. I've given you a new mind. Follow me. But that power is working in us, which means he says, and I'll help you. And I'm with you. Point number one is really the point of the whole passage. There's two groups. The cross divides us in two. The only division that really makes sense. But whenever there's a division, whenever there's groups, and whenever there's no middle ground, it demands a decision, doesn't it? It demands a decision from every one of us. Which group? Will you repent and believe what the world thinks is folly, but that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place so we could live for Him and live forever? Or will we say, that's nuts. I'm just going to try it myself. We'll see how it works out. Because we know that that ends in destruction. That's the choice this morning that Paul starts with. You know, many of you have, have made that choice and you are following God. And for us, it becomes, are we still living in light of the cross? Or are we slipping back into that worldly mindset that we left behind? But some of you here may not have ever made that decision to follow Christ. And you may hear about the cross and you may hear about the resurrection and it may seem foolish to you. I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit is working in your heart to show you the truth of that. To show you that God, because He loved us so incredibly much, was willing to sacrifice for us so we could live with Him. T.L. Moody said, the Christian on his knees sees more than the philosopher on tiptoe. I love that. God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. We read on in the passage. We'll move through the other points fairly quickly, but the second point is the cross impresses on us the greatness of God's power and wisdom. The cross impresses on us the greatness of God's power and wisdom. Let's read verses 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he's coming back to the same argument here. And that's what he's going to do through this section. 
He keeps coming back to this division, but he expands on it a little bit here with the greatness of God's power and His wisdom. In in verse 22, we see the Jews demanding more. Show us some more signs. Convince us. The Greeks, let us think about it more. Give us more to think about. Convince us. And we see that worldly wisdom is tiny. It's always looking for more to convince. Skeptical. We see that in the Jews and the Greeks. The tininess of their wisdom. If they had incredible wisdom, would they need more to make a decision? It's sort of funny. And he goes on in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, coming back to the cross. A stumbling block to the Jews. Let's start with them. Stumbling block there is scandalon. And, and think about this idea that the Messiah was crucified. To the Jews, they expected a Messiah that would come, wipe Rome out, give them complete political freedom, that would be a conqueror and a victor. For them to say that Christ, their Messiah, was crucified on the cross, the worst form of execution for the lowest of low of criminals, that was a stumbling block. They would have said, no, not my Messiah. My Messiah can't die, and He would never die in that way. In fact, in Galatians 3.13, quoting Deuteronomy 21.23, cursed is anyone who hang on a tr- hung on a, is hung on a tree. And so they would have said, no, no, even our Old Testament says Jesus is cursed if He hung on a tree. How can that be our Messiah? It makes no sense. And this is all part of, of letter B there. The world's way of thinking is blind to God's work. comes back to what we already talked about. The Greeks... This is folly to the Gentiles, verse 23 says. For all the same reasons we said, what, you don't earn it? He would die? No, no, the Romans used crucifixion to show the supremacy of their power. Dying doesn't do that. And so it's folly. But I loved verses 24 and 25 because the point is God is greater. God is greater. So are His plans. But to those who are called, those that that God has called out to be saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. I love this passage. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most insignificant of God's thoughts blows our wisdom away. He created everything in a word, but yet we think splitting one of the smallest things He created, the atom, is the most powerful thing we could ever do. And He spoke that into existence. We've got to see the comparison. We've got to see how incredible God is and His wisdom and how insignificant we are. In Isaiah, the prophet says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Compared to God, our wisdom, eh. Because He is omniscient. He knows all things. And I am so glad He does. I can just picture Him seeing the divisions over, over Paul and Cephas and Apollos and just saying, that's just silly. That's not wisdom. They don't even know what they're talking about. But we fight this. 
We, we fight this whenever we jump to conclusions about people and what God might be doing with people. We fight this when we get our plans upset. Because we have plans based on this tiny little window of wisdom. And when God changes them, we're like, No! What are you doing, God? That's not how I prayed. You are not faithful. And we're viewing it like this, and God is viewing it like this. It's frustrating when our plans get upset. But what has God promised? He's promised to use all things for good, for His glory. And in fact, when we get frustrated and when we complain about things that are happening, we are denying, in a way, His work in our lives and that He even can turn this to good. Instead of complaining when things happen, instead of complaining when our plans get messed up, maybe it should be about how can God use this for His glory? Let me get on my soapbox for just a moment. We can be a complaining people when things don't go go right. Because we are an entitled people. And, And you see this so prominently in social media right now. Anything that happens we have at our disposal, I can put, man, I'm upset about this, or I'm upset about this. And I challenge you that that is a poor testimony of Christ. Unless, at the end of complaining, we say, but God. The problem is, what I see and what I'm tempted to do rarely has the but God because I'm looking for sympathy and I'm looking for people to come alongside me. But I'm not bringing glory to God. I'm saying I'm worried that He can't handle it. Think about it. There are times that I hope some of our non-Christian friends don't read our posts because they will think we serve a weak and puny God. Do you trust God? This is God's wisdom versus our own wisdom. That's what this is about. But God, His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts than my thoughts. Verse 26 on is another paragraph, the last paragraph in this chapter. And two points out of that. The cross turns nothings into somethings. Amen? The cross turns nothings into somethings. Look at who God is able to save and use. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. He's saying you didn't deserve much. You're not the upper crust of society. But God... And there's the but God in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, which literally means the nothings, even the nothings to bring to nothing things that are. See, we're a canvas for God's work. We're a canvas for His glory, not mine, His And so in my weakness, God is made strong. In my foolishness, God can show Himself to be wise. If I'm a vessel sold out for Him and looking to honor Him. 
You know, and again, he's fighting the conventional wisdom. If I was starting a, a, an organization, if I was starting a church, who would I choose? The best and brightest. And Paul's saying, well, no, God chose just people that were willing to follow him because the cross is the best and the brightest. And it changes us. And so we see that God, the cross turns nothings into somethings. And finally, the last few verses. A right view of the cross results in humble praise and glory to God alone. A right view of the cross results in humble praise and glory to God alone. And this gets to the reason why it has to be about the cross and not my doing. Why it's God's wisdom and not me. Why I can't earn salvation. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If we do it on our own, we're boasting. You and I know that. Verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And He covers it there. Righteousness and ability to be holy, to be sanctified, a righteousness that is not our own. Sanctification, that He cleanses us and makes us more and more like Him. Redemption, that He paid the price for our sins on the cross. Where is my work in any of that? It's not there except to be receptive to His work. In verse 31, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All of it for His glory. I'd like to end by singing a song that reminds us of the cross, but gives Him glory. To Your name be the glory. But in the end, this passage is about a comparison between worldly wisdom that thinks the cross is foolish and godly wisdom that saves through the cross. Worldly wisdom says, how can I have a better life? How can I get all I can? Godly wisdom says, how can God be glorified? Oh Lord God, we thank you for the cross. For salvation that makes no sense to us, but man, it makes great sense to you. Because in the end, you get the glory and we praise you and we worship you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never accepted you as their Savior, that has never come to you and said, I believe in Jesus Christ, that this morning would be the day. That this cross that is wonderful that we're talking about would be their cross. And they would acknowledge that you have died for their sins. Lord, I pray for those that have made that decision that the cross isn't just a historical fact that bought us fire insurance, Lord, but it's something that continues to live powerfully in our lives that affects how we view every situation, every problem, every dilemma. Because the cross shows us where the answers are. Lord, if you can handle our eternity and our rebellion, you can handle what needs to happen tomorrow. We trust you. We love you. We live in the wisdom of the cross. In Jesus' name.